Chapter 18 of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Water Lilies. Whenever I wish to refresh my recollection of the common water lilies, I can do so by means of a very pleasant little excursion. A few miles from the busy city where I live is a great park with ornamental lakes in which water lilies and other aquatics are grown. The walk across the park is charming. Undulating ground gives incessant variety to the landscape. Avenues of overarching trees temper the summer heat. Now and then we catch sight of a wide plain with scattered villages and church towers, and beyond the plain a range of noble hills shows its dim outline. The hall is of Queen Anne's time, stately and formal. Seventy years ago it was devastated by fire, and it has never been restored. The walls are still standing, but the roof and floors are gone. Though the hall is desolate, the gardens with their clipped hedges and terraces and fountains are still kept in good order. The natural beauty of the place is enhanced by its loneliness. Ancient magnificence has been first humbled, and then invested with simple natural sweetness. The solid masonry, with its time-worn classical ornaments, has lost all its stateliness, and hop, wisteria, clematis, and roses now trail over walls which were once rigid and imposing. At the meeting place of three avenues have been formed a terrace, an artificial lake, and smaller basins. Here the water lilies can not only be admired, but studied closely, for even their great rootstocks can be reached in the shallower pools. We have only two common native species of water lily, the yellow and the white. There is another native plant which looks very like the true water lilies and would be easily taken for such on hasty inspection. This is the Velarcia which is really a water gentian, but has the form of leaf and the habit of a true water lily. It shows in a striking way the power of external conditions to produce similarity of structure in plants quite distinct from one another. The flowers and fruits of Velarcia are totally unlike those of any true water lily. The leaves of the white water lily, Nymphia, float at the surface and take a shape not uncommon with floating leaves, that is, oval, with the margins slightly raised and crimped. The leaf stalk is attached near the center, and behind this point the leaf is split. The special reasons which bring about so great a variety of form in the leaves of land plants do not apply to floating leaves, which are usually a very simple shape. They need no protection from wind. Down-pointing cusps, such as drain off the rain from many hanging leaves, would here be quite useless. All the leaves lie in one plane and are well exposed to light. The chief accident to which they are exposed is the sliding of one leaf over another, which hinders the access of air and light to the lower leaf, and often causes premature decay. Under natural conditions this accident does not occur. Nymphia is partial to deep waters, and I have found it rooted at the bottom of a highland loch in a depth of forty feet. Then the long, curved, and flexible leaf stalks, like slack cables, allow so much play to the leaves that they can adjust their distances and avoid mutual pressure. But when the plant is grown in shallow water, it cannot avoid overcrowding. There is not enough length of stalk for the leaves to adjust their distances, and they sometimes push one another into the air or are pushed up by the undue elongation of the leaf stalk. Like all floating leaves, those of Nymphia bear cuticle, stomates, and palisade cells on the upper surface only, for the undersurface, being turned away from the light and air, takes no direct part in the work of assimilation, and does not require protection from evaporation or intense sunlight. 
If the leaf or flower stalk of a nymphia is cut across, numerous air canals are seen to traverse it. They lead into the leaf or flower and give buoyancy, besides carrying air to the submerged organs. Into the air spaces peculiar stellate hairs project, which are stiffened by a deposit of calcium oxalate. Their function has not been ascertained with certainty. Perhaps, as Stahl believes, they discourage the attacks of snails and other animals which feed on submerged vegetation. Of course, the stalks need special defenses, for if they are much damaged, the entire leaf or flower will be destroyed. The attacks of caterpillars or snails, which gnaw the blades of the leaves, are less serious. When the leaf bud begins to expand, its margins are folded inwards, and the future upper surface is nowhere exposed. At this time, the leaf is completely submerged and completely wetted. Shortly after it has gained the surface and expanded into a flat oval plate, its surface becomes glossy and is covered with a waxy secretion which throws off the water. The textbooks of botany which I have examined give no adequate description of the stem or rootstock of our water lilies, and I shall therefore describe them more fully than would otherwise be necessary. The rootstocks of the white and yellow water lily are alike in their general appearance and resemble the human arm in size and form, except that they are a little flattened from above downwards along their whole length. They are prostrate and lie on or in the mud. The larger end is the older and is more or less decayed. The leaves of the year are given off towards the smaller end, and beyond these, during most of the year, is found a bunch of undeveloped leaves, rolled up tightly and forming pointed, stalk-like projections, which stand out horizontally for perhaps a foot beyond the growing point of the rhizome and in line with it. The growing end is a little turned up and buried among the bases of the leaves of the current year. A few inches farther back, the leaves have disappeared, but their scars mark the rootstock, especially its top and sides, with a conspicuous pattern. Towards the growing end from the sides and lower surface, many rootlets of about the diameter of a goose quill and often a foot long project downwards into the mud. A rootlet is generally shaggy with root hairs, except for an inch or two at its base and an inch or two at its tip. Branched rootstocks are often found. The rootstock contains so much air that it floats in water when the roots are severed. So far, the description applies to both nymphia and to nufar. The rootstock of nymphia, white water lily, is black externally and roughened by very numerous leaf scars, which are prominent, smaller than in nufar, and set much more closely. The arrangement is quincuncial. When preserved in a watery fluid, both the rootstock and the water in which it is immersed turn to an inky black, which is due to tannin present in large quantity in the tissues. When cut across, the rootstock of nymphia shows a central zone of harder tissue. The vessels are few and scattered. The rootstock of nufar is not so dark as that of nymphia, but of a stone color blended with green. The leaf scars are larger and more distant from one another. Each has a sloping buttress. The underside is flattened and bears fewer leaf scars than the top or sides. The rootlets spring, as a rule, from the base of a leaf scar, three to six in a longitudinal series. When they wither and fall off, they leave pits. No ring of harder tissue is seen on the cut end. The rootstock does not contain so much tannin as that of nymphia. The flowers of nymphia are formed beneath the surface of the water and only float when expanded. Even when they have once expanded, they close every evening, beginning as early as four o'clock in the afternoon, and sink. 
there are four green sepals, or outer floral leaves, and probably only eight true petals, but the number is greatly increased by secondary petals, four groups of four each, which form within and between the four primary petals of the inner whorl. The secondary petals pass gradually into the stamens, and a narrow white petal often bears one or two anther lobes. Very likely all the secondary petals were once stamens. If so, the flower is a double one, like a cabbage rose. The unaltered stamens are very numerous. The pistil consists of many united carpels, each many seeded, and the whole mass is half sunk in a flower cushion or receptacle formed out of the end of the flower stalk. The numerous stigmas have a radiating arrangement, as in a poppy, to which the water lilies are believed to be allied. Nymphia is pollinated by flying beetles, such as rose chafers, which are sometimes caught in the closing flowers and drowned. After flowering is over, the pistil slowly enlarges, and before long is set free by the rotting of part of the flower stalk. It sinks to the bottom until the seeds are ripe. Then the envelope bursts, and a rounded mass of slimy seeds is disclosed, which floats up to the surface and forms patches not unlike fish or frog spawn. During ripening, each seed becomes invested by a spongy membrane or aril, and air is secreted and lodged in this. The floating seeds are soon dispersed by currents or wind, possibly by birds also. After a few hours, the air escapes from the arils, the seeds become waterlogged, and being, like nearly all seeds, heavier than water, they sink to the bottom, where they are destined to germinate. Nufar, the yellow water lily, in addition to its floating leaves, which nearly resemble those of Nymphia, has submerged leaves, which are thin, like many other submerged leaves, and wavy. Their large size and abundant chlorophyll shows that they are functional, and their presence in Nufar, as well as their absence in Nymphia, is easily explained by the situations in which each kind of water lily is most at home. Nufar flourishes best in shallow pools, where the sun's rays can reach the bottom. Nymphia prefers a depth of twenty feet or more, where the bottom must be practically dark. In the colder months of the year, when the floating leaves have not yet made their way to the surface, or are turning yellow with age, the submerged leaves of Nufar are probably a valuable source of assimilated carbon. The flowers of Nufar differ materially from those of Nymphia. They do not float, but stick out of the water and expand in the air, not sinking by night. There are more outer leaves than in Nymphia. The petals are smaller, the carpels not sunk in the flower stalk. The flowers exhale a peculiar alcoholic odor, which is perhaps attractive to the beetles, flies, and bees which visit them. The fruits do not sink like those of Nymphia, but float. After a time, the green rind absorbs water until it swells and bursts, exposing the white carpels, which have the arrangement and appearance of the segments of an orange. The carpels soon break loose and float on the surface, by reason of the air which is lodged in their spongy substance. After a day or two, the air is dislodged, and the heavy seeds sink to the bottom. Sometimes the seeds fall from a carpel, which is still buoyant. Anyone who watches the germination of water lily seeds will find that the young plants pass through a series of changes which perhaps preserve a record of ancient stages of evolution. The seedling has at first long strap-shaped leaves, like those of Vallisneria and other submerged plants. This form of leaf, though not peculiar to aquatic plants, is well suited to life in a slow current of water. 
the ribbon or strap-shaped leaf is succeeded by an ovate leaf with narrowed base, which reminds us of the aerial leaves of water plantain, alisma, or the floating leaves of some common potamogetons. The next stage is a sagittate leaf like that of arrowhead. Lastly, the backward-directed lobes curve inwards till they meet, the long sides become uniformly convex, and the floating leaves of nymphia or nufar are attained. Such a succession of leaves appears to be normal in water lilies and is also exemplified by the alisma family, which includes arrowhead and water plantain. Its occurrence in two distant families indicates that the succession was strongly adaptive in its origin, but it appears to be so ancient in both cases as to have become ancestral, that is, perpetuated rather by long-continued inheritance than by the exigencies of present conditions. In spite of their aquatic situation, the water lilies are much beset with caterpillars, the larvae of a moth known as the brown china marks. The larva is found in early summer on pondweed and afterwards devours the leaves of water lilies and some other aquatic plants. It makes a flattish sheath out of two pieces of leaf and thus completely conceals its own body. The sheath, even if submerged, is kept full of air, for the larva has no gills and breathes solely by spiracles. The pupal stage is passed within the same sheath, but is never submerged. Other insects attack the water lilies in ways of their own. A dipterous larva mines the leaves and excavates long winding galleries in their thickness. The rootstocks harbor a beetle larva, Donacea, which, though it lives at the bottom of a pond or river, is an air breather. It procures the air which it requires by tapping the air-filled cavities of the rootstock and filling its respiratory tubes through spiracles constructed for this very purpose. It interested me greatly when visiting the lakes of the Algonquin Reservation in Canada to remark how similar was their vegetation to that of our own ponds. There were water lilies just like ours to superficial observation, and these water lilies were gnawed by insects which came very near to our china marks. Of all faunas and floras, those of freshwater basins might have been expected to be most narrowly limited in space because of the great apparent difficulties of transport over land and sea. Yet there is, I believe, no fauna or flora so widespread and so constant. Is this due to the long-continued survival of ancient forms in small and disconnected areas where they are subject only to feeble competition? Or can it be explained, as Darwin thought, by supposing that freshwater plants and animals, instead of being at a disadvantage, enjoy unusual facilities for dispersal? End of chapter 18